Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my privilege to have as my guest, Ben Gosden. Ben is a United Methodist pastor of Trinity Church in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, Ben is a profound Wesleyan thinker, uh, but he's here today not to just talk about ministry, but to share a little bit about his journey through recovery from alcoholism. Ben is transparent and open about his own struggles, how he became aware that his drinking was an actual problem, and he's going to share about the transformation that he's found through 12 steps. Now, this podcast isn't just about alcoholism or even about pastors who maybe drink too much. We're going to get into the weeds about addiction in general, and I'm going to say this during the podcast, but it's super important for listeners to understand that addiction, whether it's alcohol, food, overwork, pornography, video games, addictions aren't a problem. Addictions are actually a solution, but they're a solution to a deeper problem. You're going to hear that thread flow throughout our conversation, and Ben is going to talk about how he's found transformation and growth through 12 steps and how each of us can use those principles to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. Because what we're ultimately talking about when we talk about recovery, we're talking about transformation. Or to even use a a Wesleyan word that I love, we're talking about sanctification, becoming the persons that God created us to be. I love this conversation with Ben, and I'm glad to share it with you. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me at deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. If you're interested in any of the resources mentioned, they'll be in the show notes. And if you're interested in finding out a little bit more about the coaching that I do that Ben mentions, you can check that out at brianrussellphd.com. Now let's listen into the conversation that I had with Ben. Uh, welcome to the Deep Dive Podcast, Ben. It's so great to have you on. Thank you, Dr. Russell. It's a joy to be on with you. Yeah. Can you just introduce yourself a little bit to the audience by talking about some of the key moments in your uh, in your spiritual journey that led you to ministry and then ultimately over the last year to be on a recovery journey at, while simultaneously being in ministry? Yeah. So uh, I, I'm Ben Gosden. I've been the pastor at Trinity United Methodist Church in downtown Savannah, Georgia, Coming up on seven years, it's hard to believe. Um, <clears throat> we've been uh, here for seven years. Um, I've been in full-time ministry for uh, 13 years, which is kind of hard to believe as well. Um, but then again, I just turned 40, so I, I'm no longer officially a young pastor. I'm now a middle-aged pastor, and so I guess time does begin to add up. Um, my faith journey, it, you know, in many ways is probably like a lot of folks who go into ministry, I've known nothing but the church. Um, I have been a part of the church since, you know, before entering this world. My mother has just, she's one of those dying breed of, of, you know, she's now an older church lady. Uh, She goes to church. She gives her life to the church. She serves. She leads. She teaches Sunday school, leads United Methodist Women, um, all the stuff. And so I've always known the church. The I, I joke that the first place I drove when I was 16 was to church because my mom knew that I knew 
the route to get there. And so that was the first place she trusted me to drive. There's probably a sermon illustration in that. Um, you know, I came up in the church, so I followed a lot of the rites and rituals, you know, baptized as an infant, um, Sunday school, all of that, growing up, confirmation, youth. Um, I have a couple of iterations that, that I won't go into great detail of sort of my personal growth uh, in faith, but a lot of it is through the nurturing of others. Um, I felt a call to ministry when I was young. Um, in recent years, I wonder if it was a call to ministry or if it was a way to please my mom, um, which is the codependency piece of recovery. Because my mom, being such a church lady, you know, women like that love to have children who want to go into ministry. Um, <clears throat> so I did that. Uh, but but it, came, it became my own calling later in life. Some situations happened in my personal life that kind of reshifted some focus, um, kind of put me on a different trajectory. Um, a lot of it was I was kind of wanting to navigate it that if I was called to ministry, it needed to be my calling, not my mom's pressure uh, or my church's pressure, you know, because they they before me did not have a person go into ministry out of their local church. Um, so it, it was a thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I was called into ministry, went to seminary at Candler School of Theology. Um, before I went to seminary, met my wife, Katie, who's a nurse. She's now a nurse practitioner. Um, she is an adult convert, and in many ways, she makes me a better Christian mm. because she is one who has learned the language of faith and the language of the church, which it, it, more recently, which means she also questions those things. Um, more more readily than I, I might. And that's good for those of us who spend all of our time in the church to have people remind us that if this stuff isn't relevant to everybody, then is it relevant at all? You know, not so much that, that we're not a people set apart, but but if if the message of the gospel can't be translated for all people, then then I'm not sure it's fulfilling the gospel mandate that Jesus gave us. So yeah, I mean, that brings me 13 years into marriage. I have two kids. Um, I'm I'm that deathly afraid uh, pastor who does not want my PK children to resent the church one day. Uh, so I've got an 11-year-old and a 6-year-old. Um, the 11-year-old is questioning in, in amazing ways. The 6-year-old just eats church up and loves every minute. So we're kind of living between those two extremes. Um, you have been my coach. Uh, for the last couple of years, a uh, spiritual coach that I have been grateful for. And I found you through some friends who who you were their professor. Um, I'm very grateful for that. Um, and then, yeah, you know, that kind of brings us to the to the turning point of recovery at, at age age 39. Yeah. And so, uh, again, thanks for uh, <clears throat> saying I've been coaching you. I wasn't even going to necessarily mention that, but it's true. But it, so, so that actually makes it even easier to lead in. I'm, I'm coaching you for, let's see, I guess it had been about, we were still inside the first year and you had just mentioned in passing some drinking at night that you had been doing. And it wasn't necessarily raising big flags for me other than we talked about maybe cutting back because you weren't sleeping good. So I was just seeing it more of that. And then you decided, if I recall, to do the no drinking in January um, as kind of a resolution or a commitment. And then you have never, haven't had a drink since what, January 1st, 2022. And then you ended up 
realizing that it wasn't just too much drinking once in a while at night, but it was actually a flat out drinking uh, problem. And so you went into 12 step. Talk about just the realization that you had, um, again, we can use whatever language you want to use, an addiction or an actual real problem yeah. with alcohol versus just occasional excess. Yeah, so so it, it reminded me that the other way that I, I've come, become accustomed to introducing myself is, uh, hi, my name is Ben and I'm an alcoholic. Um, I do that a few times a week at meetings. Um, the truth is a lot of coming to terms with one's uh, alcoholism it is really learned in retrospect. So it's mm. not in the moment that you know that there's these issues, but it's in looking back that you go, oh, yeah, there I see the issues now. And, and you know, I, I kind of equate it to very much a walk to Emmaus experience. You know, the disciples walk along with, with Jesus. They don't really know it's him. And then at the very last minute, he reveals himself and then he's gone. And then they say, we're not our hearts burning you know, from, from being with him, but it's only in looking back that they realize, oh yeah, he was with us the whole time. So it's in looking back that I realized I, I really had a problem for a while. Um, I remember the first time that I drank and I didn't drink until college, but I remember the first time I drank, some buddies had found a quiet bar that had just opened. So we were going to college. We were one of the only regular groups, you know, that, that come in and keep a bar open. And in those days, you know, that bar, it was, uh, you know, you could drink eight or 10 beers and they might charge you for four. So it was a great deal. If you're a poor college kid, you can go drink pretty much as much as you want. They're just glad you're there. And I was very much in that Christian 90s world of like purity. And we don't do sex before marriage. We don't do alcohol. We don't smoke cigarettes. You know, we we don't watch dirty movies and all the stuff that, that there was a lot of shame if you did engage in those things. So by college, I struggled with the shame of saying I want to be social and I want to fit in. But then I also struggled with like, um, you know, are these things OK to do? And then I was really ready to get away from that culture, too. I, I really had a resentment toward that culture that said, you know, it, it just dictated more morality in such uh, rigid ways. And so I remember the first night I went and drank and I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, I remember I didn't like the taste, but once I kind of got a little alcohol in me, something changed. And all of a sudden for the first time, I felt comfortable in my own skin with a group of people mm. and I could fake it for years. And I, I can you know, I'm, I'm a minister. I can fake being comfortable with people all the time. But the truth is, I'm not always socially comfortable. I, I've I've said for years I'm an extrovert, and only in recovery have have I realized I'm really an introvert who can pretend to be an extrovert. So that the first time and the first time I drank, I drank a good bit um, because if a little of that feeling feels a little good, then why not have a lot of it so it can feel a lot of good, right? Um, so I drank like a college kid and then I got married and slowed down. We also didn't have a lot of money when we first got married. So we would have to like buy $5 bottles of wine and stretch it. But I, I remember I love, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the social aspect. I enjoyed the, for me, it always felt like a pressure valve in me got released when I had alcohol. Like all of a sudden I could just relax in my own skin. Um, Later, when I actually got into ministry and had more money, um, 
drinking became more and more socially acceptable. I became the cool pastor who would drink with his church members. Mm-hmm. And so not only was I being accepted, which I always secretly wanted to be and didn't know how to be, but I was also doing ministry. Like I was reaching people for the gospel. And all of that's true. I was. People were coming to church. They loved hanging out with me. I mean, we had a great time. Um, not, not everybody drank too much. In fact, that rarely happened. Um, but what developed over time was not the social drinking that was becoming more and more harmful. It was the secret drinking. Mm. It was the drinking by myself. And and it was, you know, what became of, you know, you hear people say, oh, at the end of the day, I need a drink. Oh, it's five o'clock somewhere. You know, all those things. I would say that, but it became once a week, twice a week, every night. And it just became a thing that I I enjoyed doing. But secretly, I think I, I needed it. Mm-hmm. Um, the language in the big book, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, says that that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But one of the reasons that you come to that realization is an alcoholic has to realize the reason we know that is alcohol does for us what we cannot do for ourselves until it can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so by the time you and I met, I had been a heavy drinker for years um, and just had this sort of, um, I'd wake up with shame, I'd have a headache, hangover, I'd go for a run, go to the gym, sweat it out, drink a lot of water, tell myself I'm not going to drink tonight. Ooh, you know, that was a little too much. And then I just every night out of a compulsion, just sat down at 830 at night. My body knew it. I'd pour a drink and there it was off to the races. And I, I, as I got closer to 40, I was sleeping worse and worse. And I kind of knew, like, I was just like, this is wearing my body out. I was, I was what you would call a high bottom alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I was not going to fail as a father or a husband or a pastor because I'm too much of a neurotic perfectionist to fail at anything. What I was going to do was begin to develop physical symptoms that alcohol abuse can bring on. Or as I did this past year, when I took a year off, uh, a year, a month rather, off um, for sabbatical, I was going to be burnt out mm-hmm. in ministry. And and the very thing that I thought was helping me escape and relieve pressure was going to be the thing that would bring me down as a pastor that I would just, I would just have a breakdown at some point. So I ended the year and I, 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 did, I didn't have like this glorious, you know, last drunk, you know, some people have stories. I just told my wife, I said, I'm going to try to stop drinking <clears throat> on New Year's because I'm tired. Mm-hmm. My birthday's in mid-November, and I I would go every year those last six weeks of the year from my birthday to Thanksgiving to the Advent season, which, by the way, is a high-pressure season for pastors. Yes. Not only that, if you're at a church where it's socially acceptable to drink with church members, you got Christmas parties galore. So you've got all the pressures that you're trying to relieve. You've got all the socialization you're trying to do. You got all the pressure to get to Christmas, and then you've got the wind down after where I would take a week off. And frankly, that's even more merit, like vacation. Let's drink a little more. It's been a heck of an advent. I was just tired. Mm-hmm. It took me about three and a half months to realize uh, of being sober, to realize this was more than just, I need a break from alcohol. I realized, and I sort of had a moment 
that I realized if I drink again, it's not going to be one drink. It's going to be six. And then as soon as I thought of that, I played the tape and then I thought that's not a normal people don't think that way. And so I called a friend who's been in recovery for years and said, hey, I think I need to go to AA. And he said, all right, come to my meeting. And, and then I've been uh, going to AA now for, for a few months. Um, I'm 15 months sober. I'm probably almost coming up on a year when I started AA. Um, but yeah. No, it's fantastic. And I, I just want to name a couple of things uh, and then we'll keep going with the conversation again. First of all, um, Super grateful, already kind of welcome you to the show, but really grateful for the transparency um, and the courage to actually just come on and, and talk about uh, exactly what you're talking about. Uh, and 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 I think for everybody's listening, it's easy to say, well, I don't drink too much. So I, I, what, what does this have to do? It's like I wanted to do this particular podcast um, for exactly the way that you described your inner world uh, that mm -hmm. alcohol helped to solve because um, the fact of the matter is, um, you know, there are pastors that drink too much. And I know multiple pastors who actually are out of ministry because they drank too much and marriages blew up mm -hmm. and, the, and the whole thing. And there's no judgment on those folks because I know they've been through recovery and are doing really well. So grateful that you were able to catch it early, but you named some things like what did alcohol do for you? Acceptance, uh, comfortable in your own skin. Um, yeah, it it uh, it it you looked and you already named the first step where God does for you, but in a sense, your the the addiction, the thing outside of yourself, other than God, becomes basically the thing that you need to function. And so, when we think about addiction that way, um, uh, and you may not, I don't think this is AA language, but um, in, in the addiction work that I've done, um we kind of learned that addiction, they say it in a really funny way, addiction isn't a problem, it's a solution. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a solution to a deeper problem. And you've already kind of hinted at that. And also wanted to just name, you also mentioned if you would have kept going, um, you know, you were high functioning in most pastors, unless they literally bottom out by intense drinking that wrecks marriage, family, and, and those things, or drugs, or a sex addiction where they actually cheat on a partner. These things can go on for a long time because there's oh, other yeah. things that pastors use because you named the pressures. I mean, we're coming up on one. Uh, I guess Lent isn't quite the pressure that Advent is, but there's still a lot of folks are going to be coming around, like even during this Lent Easter season that we're in. I'm not 100% sure when this is going to come out, but it's coming out somewhere roughly around Easter of 2023. So there's issues of burnout. And so uh, we can be addicted to food. Some people yep. eat too much, and that's the thing. We have lots of comfort food, and the church is really good at providing really good, lots of comfort food. Oh yeah. Um, and 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 my to me um, beyond you know just alcohol to me there, there's <clears throat> one addiction that no pastor ever gets in trouble for, and that's called working too much. And in mm -hmm. fact, sometimes the pastor becomes the paid holy man or paid holy woman that does the work of the church, and then we take that. And that becomes the thing outside of ourselves that actually validates us. So you get in these cycles. So, um, you know, we're here to talk about uh, recovery. And, and again, we want to use your the the particular piece of um, alcohol. But like I'll, I'll know, everybody knows me. Um, I've been called a workhorse my whole life. And over the last couple of years, I mean, it's just, I'm like, I can't do it anymore. And I realized like, geez, I'm, I'm addicted to work and external validation from that. And that has its own costs. 
uh, too. And so this podcast is for anybody out there, especially the pastors who are listening, that, again, have to look for something outside of themselves as a solution to make you feel okay on the inside, whether it's right. work, achievement, all of those things that we talked about. And so, I don't, again, I don't, I don't want to take any more thing away from my conversation with you, Ben, but I think I wanted to frame out uh, some of that. And so now enter 12 steps. And, and in your particular case, um, what you found real transformations and you're still, I think you're still, you're still on the 12 step process. Oh, it yeah. takes time, but, but talk a little bit about how 12 steps can have helped you and, um, and, and maybe even run through the steps for those who aren't, who can't, um, cause again, I've talked to you enough. You can like rattle them off. I, I don't know all the steps by heart, even myself. So talk a little bit about what the 12 steps are and how it's actually helped you, um, in your journey towards transformation. Yeah. So a brief, yeah, uh, and and by the way, the 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 whole na nature of addiction. One way that I've come to understand it is, whatever it is that helps us escape uncomfortable feelings, yes, can be an addiction. So if your thing's not alcohol, I'm preaching on the twelve steps, the whole series through Lent and up to Easter, and I told my people, you may not be an alcoholic like me, but there may be other things that help you escape dealing with uncomfortable human feelings. You can work, pour yourself into work. You can eat. Eating triggers, you know, it, it, it hits dopamine receptors in our brain, just like alcohol and drugs do. Um, you can try to control other people. Some people don't want to deal with their own stuff. They'd rather tell everybody else what to do. Doomsday scrolling, where you pull out your phone and you just, you scroll endlessly, mindlessly, just whatever it is to help you get out of your head and into something else. All of these are ways that, if we're not careful, can become addictions because they help us escape. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that God makes us to escape these human things. God does not spare us from these human discomforts, but God promises to be present with us. And so if we seek to constantly escape, then maybe for those of us who are people of deep faith, or who claim to be, they want to say, are we also saying no to God? Because if God says, I'm here with you in this human experience, why are you leaving to go scroll your phone, eat, drink, work, do all these things? I want to be here. And those are the moments, those, those, those are the moments, the many rock bottom moments of experiencing something difficult, naming the feelings, sitting with them because they're human. We can't avoid them. And then we find by the grace of God, they pass like the ebb and flow of an ocean. I had a guy in a recovery meeting and I, I'll tell you the steps in just a minute, but I love this story. Yeah, he this said, is really good. So keep going. This is awesome. Yeah, he, 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 this, he was, uh, he said that, uh, he's in recovery for years. So really wise guy. <laughs> and he said, you know, I had a bad day the other day and I had all these feelings. I was just, I, we call it, um, uh, um, uh, uh, irritable, um, restless, irritable and discontent is what the big book says, that sometimes we just feel uh, restless, irritable, and discontent. We're just not happy. And he said, I had one of those days. And he said, you know what I decided to do? I turned off all the lights. I sat on my couch, and I just sat with it. Mm -hmm. And I just said, I'm not getting up until something else happens. And he said, you know what happened? About five and a half minutes later, the feelings passed. And he said, and here's the thing. I drank for years to get rid of those feelings and they only took five minutes to pass. 
So as human beings, we tend to just, we don't like uncomfortable feelings. That's part of the brokenness that we live as human beings with is that some days aren't good days. Some feelings aren't pleasurable. And you can run from them, escape them, or you can have the courage to name them, sit with them, be curious about them, offer yourself a little grace, and know that God's present in those moments, maybe even more so. I mean, this is Lent, right? We're building toward Easter, which means we're building toward, you know, the the the, the culmination of a story of a God who shows up on the cross. I mean, we, you know, it's not as dramatic as a crucifixion, but there are a lot of days we feel a little crucified in whatever we're doing. And if Jesus is present in his cross, is he not also present in all of our many crosses? That's the beauty of, 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 of you know, this God whose who's self-love is demonstrated in that, you know, while we were sitting in our brokenness, Christ died for us. So I think it's perfectly acceptable to say, you know what, some days are just crap and we got to sit in it like Job on the ash heap and just sit and God will meet us there. So there's that, um, the 12 steps. I'm see if I can rattle these off in layman's terms even. Step one, our life is unmanageable. Um, we admit that our life's unmanageable and that we are powerless. Now in, in AA, we say powerless over alcohol, but I think in life, we can just say, my life can be a mess and I, I am powerless over people, places, and things. No matter how much I want circumstances to change, I don't have ultimate power over them. Step one. Step two, to trust that a power greater than ourselves, we would, you and I would say God, is the only thing that can restore us to sanity. Or in layman's terms, only God can heal us. Step three, to give our life and our will over to the care of God. Now, the program nuances it, God as we understand God, but you and I would say th this is the essence of what it means to give your life to Christ. You know, it's not about a momentary decision you make to punch a ticket to heaven, you know, one day. This is about every day. I, I try to pray a third step prayer to say, God, if I do nothing else, let me give my life and my will to you. And part of that means free me. You know, I ask in prayer, God, free me from the burden of my own self-will, because if you leave me up to my own devices, I'll try to control everything in my life with an iron fist. So step three is giving up that. You know, one one old timer pointed it out to me, and I love it, that the, the steps one through three can be simply understood as I can't, God can, I think I'll let God. So then once we sort of get into that movement of saying we can't control power, we give it over to God, then we have to deal with our past because our past, will, you know, is history is doomed to repeat itself if you don't address it. Steps four and five. Step four, we make, make a searching and fearless, I love the AA language, a searching and fearless moral inventory. Search through all the gunk in my soul. Clean it out. Name it. What am I afraid of? What am I resentful of? What are the things that, that, that are the Achilles heel that drive me into giving into a life of sin? As Christians, we don't want to admit it, but there are decisions we make in most ordinary ways that come out of sinfulness, not out of the presence of God's love. So what are those repetitive behaviors and fears and, and, and resentments? And am I prone to anger? Am I selfish? You know, do I like for things to work my way? And, you know, am I not gracious and merciful to others? You know, all this stuff. Step five is once we've named, you know, develop that inventory, we name it. We say it to ourselves. We say it to God and we say it to one other person. And the reason we do that 
is when you name feelings and you name this inventory of sin, it takes a little bit of the power back. Mm-hmm. Those things don't have to control you the way that they once did once you name them out loud. It's kind of like I always equate it to that box in your garage that is full of just decaying junk and you don't want to deal with it. So you think as long as I leave it in the garage and leave it closed and leave the light off and just don't look at it, it'll take care of itself. But the truth is, it's decaying in that box whether you want to open it or not. So why don't you just go in there, turn on the light, open it and go through it? And then you realize, hey, maybe, you know, this is bad, but it's not as bad as I thought. It doesn't have to control me uh, and all that stuff. So that's step five. Step six and seven is, the I think, the hinge point of the 12 steps. Step six is to become entirely willing to ask God to remove our defects of character. To become entirely willing is to say, I will not give in to my fear. I will not live into these character defects, even though it's all I've always known, God Help me chart a new course in life. That's the essence of transformation. I will live differently now. And so uh, step six, you become willing. Step seven, you ask, God, take this from me. And it's important to note that, you know, some things could go in an instant. We wish all of these defects would just disappear, but they don't. I'm still afraid of everything. I'm still prone to certain things. But there's a couple of ways you can address that. One is that you become aware. Mm-hmm. And by becoming aware, it doesn't have the power to dictate your actions as much. Or you're at least more sensitive to it. Or you could help your neighbor who might have a similar struggle by being empathetic to say, you know what, I struggle with anger or selfishness too. Here's what I'm learning from God. Or there's another way that you can approach that can be your sort of way of, of, of holding up your end of the bargain with God. If selfishness is a character defect of yours, then how could you be more generous? Create behaviors that, that are the opposite. If I'm afraid, do something that, that I'm a little afraid of, so, something small, you know, that, that, that I can get over some fear. How can I do the opposite of anger? How can I do the opposite of whatever defect it may be? So th- that's step six, uh, excuse me, uh, six and seven. Eight and nine's hard. It's where you uh, make your list of amends. And then you go and you talk to the people and you offer your amends. Amends are very important. One is that you don't offer amends to everybody. If if offering the amends could cause harm to you or someone else, there's some things in life you have to make amends with and make peace with to say, you know, this just isn't repairable. But God help me live with that. And that's okay. Amends is also important because you don't focus on what the other person did. They may have done a lot of wrong to you, but that's not the matter at hand. The matter at hand is what did I do to you and how can I make that right? I keep my side of the street clean. You have to deal with your side of the street between you and God, and I have to accept you may not deal with it the way I want you to or the way I deal with mine, but that's God's problem and your problem, not mine. Step 10 is the spot check inventory is is, uh, one way we call it. It's where you look and see how can my character defects pop up like weeds in my daily life. And then can I name them, you know, talk to God about them, talk to another person about them, pray about them, you know, so that I can be always sensitive on a daily basis. Step 11 is to improve our conscious contact with God. You and I would say to improve our prayer life. How can I begin and end every day praying, you know, for God's will to be done and to, you know, to, to give, give our lives to, to God 
to begin and end and book in the day. And then step 12 is having had a spiritual awakening um, that you share the, the message of AA is how we say it. I would say that you share the good news of God's transformative power and you practice these principles in all your affairs. That's where the 12 steps becomes a lifelong journey. I have to live the steps every day for the rest of my life. So for me, the 12 steps is really a, 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 a spiritual framework for discipleship, one that I've never known. And, and it just the light bulb went off to say, oh, this is how I can live personal discipleship in a tangible, real and deep transformative way. Yeah, and and I want to make an observation too. I love the way that you just described all all those things, and you know, and I've known people that are in recovery, and they consider that their church. And so the mm -hmm. uh, and the way you described it, you can precise and and how you ended it, you can see why that is because it's really about discipleship. And so you know, a lot of times, at least even I did from the outside, I always just thought, oh, you're in recovery, so you stop drinking or you stop whatever you're trying to stop, but that isn't it at all. It's completely right. be transformed, right? Is uh, did, did that surprise you? You know, you go into 12, did, what did you think was going to happen when you went to Alcoholics Anonymous versus what you've experienced? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and looking back, <clears throat> now that I have a little time of sobriety, I see it. But again, you don't see it in the moment. It's always in retrospect. When you show up in the rooms, you're just desperate to stop drinking. Mm-hmm. You've, I mean, anyone who comes into that room and sometimes they stay, sometimes they go back out, sometimes they come and go, come and go. Um, but you cross the threshold into the room. And just doing that, you have you have done step one. You've said my life is a mess and I, I cannot do this anymore. I'm powerless. Now, staying power is hard. That's where the rest of the steps come in. But just coming into the room is step one. And for most of us, it is, I am miserable and I can't quit drinking. Um, once you get your drinking habits under some control, we do it one day at a time, you know, daily decision. I mean, every day I write in my journal, you know, what, um, what's one of my goals for the day? Stay sober. Don't drink. I'm 400 uh, today as of this interview, 443 days sober. And Every day still, I don't want to drink. But there comes a point at which it also becomes about emotional sobriety. Drinking is the outward expression of an inward disturbance. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't realize until I had some sobriety that, oh, my drinking is not just because I love drinking. My drinking is because I got a lot of stuff inside of me to deal with. And as a pastor, I'm often not given the space to deal with those things because I'm too busy worried about other people dealing with their things. And I'm secretly very codependent on that because if, as long as I can be the ambassador to healing in your life and you need me, then I feel good and fulfilled. But as soon as either A, you don't need me or B, I have to acknowledge I have my own issues. Well, then I now start questioning my call to ministry. So I don't think pastors are given permission enough to deal with their own their own faith lives, more than just praying and reading the Bible every day. It's great if that's what you do. That's awesome. But what's the real stuff inside of you that's a mess? And how can you get space to deal with that? I don't tell people in recovery rooms I'm a pastor. Lord knows there's enough issues people have with church and God 
you know, in recovery rooms, I don't want to be a hurt, you know, a hindrance, but I also get the freedom to just be Ben. And sometimes I need a reminder that I'm more than even just a pastor. You know, before I went to seminary or grew my church or got ordained or all these things that we think make us who we are, I, I, you know, my life is my baptism. I was claimed by God. So it separates vocation a little bit, or at least remind, puts, puts in better priority. Your vocation comes out of your baptismal identity, not vice versa, which means I got to deal with, you know, myself. I mean, if baptism is the truth of my life, then then how does that get in conversation with the sin in my life, which is an ongoing daily thing? Amen. And so even in Wesleyan terms, we could talk about recovery is actually, we're talking about sanctification. Is yep. that how you understand it? Yeah, we call it in the big, the big book says pro, we, we progress over perfection. But I would say that's sort of what John Wesley had in mind when he said that we're moving on toward perfection. Amen. You know, it, Wesley really articulated that it is the progress, the progressive journey toward God as we grow in, in, in the knowledge of God's love in our lives and, and, and around us. Um, that's the spiritual progress that AA speaks to. Yeah. Let me ask, a, I want to ask a couple of questions before I get into the, to the kind of final ones I'd like to ask everybody. And again, this has been, uh, been so good today, Ben. So thank you. Um, you've, you've probably touched on this just a little bit, but let me just ask it and see if you want to add anything to what you've already built out. What, what do you think that pastors uh, or even lay people uh, need to understand about addiction and recovery that would aid them in their own work for the Lord? Or like, what do you wish everybody would know about recovery? Yeah, that's a, what a great question. We have a ministry at our church that really is dealing with that. We, one of the things we say is that we want to bring recovery out of the church basement and into the sanctuary. We say that because AA meetings tend to be in the church basements. Now, part of that is the, it protects anonymity of those who right. come. We don't want to put you there where everyone's going to see you. But there is something that theologically happens in churches that we sort of say recovery is something on the margins. I would say that first and foremost, I want Christians to know that addiction is not about moral failing. We tend to think that and we judge people and we judge people who love people who are in addiction because we think it's a moral failure. It's not. There's a lot that goes into it. There's a biological component that says I am more prone to um, compulsive behaviors than other people. There's also science out there now that's saying that certain people are born with more sensitive uh, dopamine receptors. So for you, you know, a bottle of beer may say, oh, okay, that's a nice little feeling. But for me, if I have more sensitive dopamine receptors, all of a sudden that beer feels great. And because human beings are addictive by nature, we like things that feel good. You know, if your receptors are more sensitive, then you're more likely to to want to engage in that. So there's that. It's an addictive substance. So, the you know, there's stuff that's bound to happen. But also addiction really, the, the addictive behavior really is that outward sign of a much more inward struggle. And, and I don't think we give enough space for people to just say that they need help. Mm-hmm. 
there's a, a a children's book, and I'm going to forget the title now. Uh, Apple TV's got a movie or something. It's like the boy, the horse, the the dog, the son. <laughs> it, beautifully illustrated book. It won an Oscar. There's a powerful scene where the boy asks the wise horse, what's the bravest thing you've ever said? And the horse tells him that the bravest thing he ever said is help, mm-hmm. asking for help. Most of us never have the courage to do that. And so I would say to churches, be the place where people who finally muster the courage to ask for help, where they can find a home. Because addiction is also a very isolating illness and struggle. By nature, it sets us apart. You know, the thing that made me feel socially acceptable by the end became the thing I just wanted to do by myself. And and you can feel very alone in that. So for churches, it's not a moral failure. Be open and listen and accepting of, of people and families who are struggling with it because more are than you think. They hide it really well. They want you to give the outward appearances that everything's okay. And 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 they're not. You know, Jesus said that 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 he came, <clears throat> you know, he 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 the doctor doesn't come for those who are well, he comes for those who are sick. And he and Jesus came for the broken and those who live in the brokenness of addiction. I mean, the church ought to be the place where they find a home, but too often they want to hide from it because they feel judged. I th- so I would probably say if churches could just begin there. You know, Ted Lasso teaches us a lesson in the Great Apple TV show. Be curious, not judgmental. Don't judge. Ask questions and then be open to love. And you can go a long way with helping families along this healing process. That's so good. And uh, just for people that are listening, um, I'll name two of my previous guests. Uh, Michael Beck, who's been on a couple mm-hmm. of times, and also George Acevedo, who was just on a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. Both of the, those, both of those are pastors also. Both of them have been in recovery long term, and both of them have used, um, used is the wrong word, but that's uh, recovery ministries have been central to their sense of calling and have allowed them to actually uh, lead communities that have been able to bless and serve a lot of people uh, and a lot of in the recovery ministries have been actually central intrinsic parts of their communities of faith and even they probably did meet in the basement i don't know how they did it but they yeah. actually ended up in the sanctuary too so a really important um last theological question here ben and again this is another uh, big one but you're you're a good thinker on this um how has the process of recovery changed the way that you think about God's grace or the way that God works transformation in a person's life? Mm, what a great question. It's like a board of ordained ministry question. Now, this is, yeah, for, your new, this yeah. is for your final elders orders now. <laughs> That's right. And I'm not sure I would have told them I'm an alcoholic. Then you get all kinds of red flags. Um, <clears throat> I think God is always more present than we realize. Mm. Sometimes we need to get out of our own way. Um, Sometimes we need to let go. I mean, it's a cliche to say, let go and let God. Um, But sometimes cliches are rooted in truth. Um, Some of the best Christians and, and, and most vocal Christians I know also think that they can just pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and conquer the world as they know it. And to just own the reality that I don't have that kind of power. And I'm okay with it. 
I, I can't predict the future and I can't make the future any different than it's going to be. And sometimes I need to just hold life like a loose garment. We say in the, in the program, you know, to accept life on life's terms. Um, I pray every day as an extended third step prayer. Part of my giving my life and will to God is free me from the burden of my self-will Free me from worry and despair because I'm one who will worry about everything and despair about everything. And I say something along the lines of help me, Lord, when I don't know what the future holds to simply just do the next right thing. And I think God meets us there. And and we we can get a more gentle view of life. I'm not nearly as tightly wound as I as I was a year ago. Um I'm not nearly as focused on results, quote unquote, or whatever measurables we have in ministry. I mean, yeah, I care about that stuff still. I'd be lying if I said I didn't. But, I, you know, I used to want big crowds on Sundays because my, my church has grown a good bit in, in the last seven years. I've changed that prayer to, Lord, help me not care about attendance. Send us the people who need you. And if, he, and if God can send us the people that just simply need God, then speak through me. Or as Thomas Merton would say, make me a window through which your grace can shine. So I think if God meets us in those ordinary daily moments like that, I'm, that goes a long way to tempering, you know, the, the ways that we think we got to be in charge or we got to control or it all depends on us. And, you know, all these lies we tell ourselves that everything comes down to it doesn't. It doesn't. Sometimes you could just work your tail off and there will be no fruit at all. And maybe you were the one who was just watering the seeds and the next person is going to come along and the harvest will be theirs. And so what if it is? Right. I, you did the next right thing. That's all God asked us. And then maybe get out of the way. Um, and it's amazing. One of the one of the, the, the language I love in the ninth step promises that AA meetings read all the time. There's 12 step. There's 12 promises in what we call the ninth step promises. And it says amazing things in there, like the things that used to baffle us will no longer baffle us, um, that, that we don't have to have despair or worry, you know, about things we thought we did. And it says that, that, that you know, our, we, we ask the question, are these extravagant promises? It's, this comes straight from the AA uh, big book. Are these extravagant promises? And the whole room responds like it's a liturgy. We think not. Some they are they are they are these promises are being fulfilled, we say, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but always with God's help if we work for them. And so sometimes you just say, you know, Lord, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. This may come together quickly, or sometimes God's grace can move slowly, but we trust that we give ourselves to God's care. Whatever time it comes will be the right time. And you just live one day at a time. What, you know, can't control tomorrow. I'll do the best I can for today. And then we'll wake up tomorrow and I'll make a decision that I'm not going to drink, that I belong to God. And I don't want to get in God's way too much today. Love it. Amen. Again, thank you for that. Uh, those all those answers, and uh, want to just we'll wrap things up just to be fair to to your time. And uh, it's oh, been yeah. so, so good. Um, uh, this question is actually really pertinent to what you've been talking about, but I ask this is what the question I always ask everybody. Um, but you know, you've talked about 
a life transformation and discipleship. So um, what does what do your rhythms look like now that support you in your ongoing transformations? So like what, what's a what's a typical day look like for you? Uh, I wake up at 430 in the morning, which I never used to do, but I love the early mornings. Um, I'm in the gym by about 515. I spend time praying and talking and trying to listen to God as I wake up in between. Uh, I spend the whole time going to the gym praying. Uh, work out. I'm home. I do morning stuff. Try to If I can spend every day trying to be present to my kids, present to my wife, present with myself, present with God, and present doing some meaningful work, you know, it kind of works out. Um, little habits I changed. I would drink at night, so now I go to bed really early. <laughs> I've always done that. Mostly early on, I was afraid if I stay up late, I'm going to be tempted to drink. So let's not do that. That's how I got into the early mornings. Um, I think one important rhythm that's, that I would tell for pastors, especially create margin that's good. in your day. If you're bouncing from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, and there's no break in between, you are not showing up as your fully healthy self. You are building up unnecessary pressure that, that for me, alcohol became that pressure valve I needed, you know, to release at the end of the day, but you're just not being a good steward of yourself. So if I find myself, you know, I got a Zoom meeting and then I got a this and then I tell myself, okay, some point in between here, I'm going to go walk my dog and just listen to music, pray, do whatever I need to do. But I've got to have some time that, that builds margin that every hour of my day does not have to be filled with something. A lot of pastors buy into the absolute utter lie that says the busier you are, the more productive you are. I had a friend early on in ministry. He serves a large church now. He said, Ben, work smart, not hard. And working smart means listening to your body, taking care of your mental health, your emotional health, your physical health, your relational health, your spiritual health. All of these things should have a part in every single day, not just work. Fantastic. Uh, I, I love that answer. Now, this may be the hardest question I ask you today, yeah. since you're a well-read person. Uh, uh, if you were just going to pick two to three books, other than the Bible, that you have found profoundly um, transformative in, for your own spiritual life, um, what would those two or three books be? That's a great question. You warned me about this question ahead, and so I, I had in the back of my mind this whole interview. I, today, because I live only one day at a time. Today, I would pick, I mean, I, we're doing all this talk. I'd have to say the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous has changed my life. And I would say anything by Thomas Merton, Seeds of Contemplation, you know, any, any of Merton's great greatest hits. Um, Merton cuts through the BS of Christianese, Christian culture, Christian empire building that we are so uh, woefully ignorant that we tend to spend all of our time doing. And Merton speaks to the realness of what, what an interior life with God is about. Good. Do you, would you add anything else or would you just stick it with Thomas Merton? And uh... Yeah. If so, Anne Lamott is to me a modern day saint. Yeah, I've heard uh, you mention her before, her, too. She yeah. writes out of her own recovery. Um, 
plan B instructions for living, you know, these, these books that she just writes about her life of faith and recovery in just the wittiest, um, real ways. Yeah. Fantastic. And if somebody wanted to read, uh, doesn't know much about 12 steps, um, would you recommend that somebody read the big book or is there another resource that you might point a person to um, particularly like a, because mostly Christians are listening to this, I'm pretty sure. So like, like what would be a resource? I happen to have it nearby because I'm doing my sermon series. Richard, Richard Rohr's Breathing Underwater. This is the spirituality of the 12 steps. I would highly recommend Richard Rohr's uh, Breathing Underwater. And then one more, this is from a uh, psychologist, 12 Steps for Everyone. Mm. So I would say those two books are pretty accessible books. Roar does a great job of, of, of extrapolating the steps in everyday spirituality. The, the other one is less um, Christian, obviously, but it very much touches on the spiritual piece. So I would kind of put them in tandem to really unpack the meaning of the steps and, and the path to recovery. And final final question, if uh, folks want to uh, learn a little bit more about you or reach out to you, what would be the best uh, place for them to go online? Yeah, so um, I would actually point you back to my podcast, which you're going to be a guest on very soon, uh, the Faith Revisited podcast I do with a, a wonderful friend and church member of mine, uh, Molly Carlson. We, we do sort of a tandem podcast, Faith Revisited. Um, we've had a couple of years of doing this, have some great guests on there, similar guests to some that you've had. We've had um, shared guests in common, but we look at faith and life in the church from the standpoint of two millennials um, who, who are just trying to make it make a go of being church leaders. So the Faith Revisited podcast, um, you can look that up anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, I would probably go there. And then my Twitter handle is at B Gosden, B-G-O-S-D-E-N, at B Gosden. Uh, you can jump on there. I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter. So sometimes I'm on regularly. Sometimes I disappear for months at a time. Um, but but I do love to connect with people. That's a great way for a broad spectrum sort of connection piece for me. Yeah. And I will say, I, I first came to know of you via Twitter because I've always found uh, you, uh, you know, we, we've even joked about it on the coaching calls, like Twitter is usually a sewer and, and that's usually the pastors I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I am being judgmental oh, yeah. there, but but I've always found, uh, you know, Ben, if you want to follow, follow a, a really good account, that's always, um, always winsome and uh, bridge building and is a, a really good voice uh, for for Methodism uh, on in, on the on, on Twitter and, and I can name some other pastors that are too but Ben I've always enjoyed his Twitter account yeah. so Ben thanks so much for uh, being my guest today thank you for uh, I, I mean for the courage to you know publicly talk about struggles with alcohol as a pastor I think it's important uh, to get the message out uh, because part of our the sanctifying work that God wants to do in our lives is um he wants to clean us up as pastors too. I remember uh, I heard Bill Hybels years ago, and it's sad because obviously Bill Hybels has had some issues uh, yeah. at the end of his ministry. But I heard him say years ago uh, that he got to the point in his ministry that the work he was doing for God was destroying the work that God was doing in him. And I wow. remember I heard that probably in 2002 or 2003, and it, I think it was recording, so I don't know when he said it, but that always struck me. And uh, that's a word of caution that all of us need to do because, um, uh, again, addiction is a solution to deeper problems. And if we get stuck in our addictions, um, we 
basically blunt the work that God really wants to yep. do in us. So, so thanks for coming on today. This is uh, this has been a great conversation. So I'm grateful for for who you are and who you continue to grow into. Thank you. Grateful for you for your coaching and for your podcast and all your wonderful ministry. Thank you, and uh, thank you everyone for listening all the way to the end of this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Uh, until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be a voice of hope in the world. Amen.